welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spearbauer. Welcome back, everybody. I am so excited you're joining us today. Our special guest, our podcast guest is Claire Blumenson, the executive director and co-founder of School Justice Project. Claire, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I am so excited to have you on the podcast today for a variety of reasons. One of which is, as with many of the guests that have been in the early days of this podcast, you and I know each other personally from our days in the classroom. Yeah, I, it feels like it was just yesterday. <laughs> it does. And I think that what is particularly interesting about many of the folks that I keep in touch with today, and I think you're no exception to this, we were really touched by our experiences of being teachers and in the classroom and whether our career has kept us in brick and mortar schools or not, we are doing work that impacts the lives of children everywhere. Absolutely. So without spoiling your own introduction, the work you are doing is something I followed for a very long time and something I'm extremely excited for you to tell others about today. So why don't you just dive right in and tell everybody about your journey in education and, and what you've built at School Justice Project. Absolutely. So as you said, my I'm currently the executive director and co-founder of an organization called School Justice Project. Um, and we're special education lawyers who work with young people in the juvenile and criminal system to make sure that they have access to special education, um, both during incarceration and throughout the reentry process. And my, my path to School Justice Project, um, it was actually relatively straightforward now that I'm looking back, but I certainly didn't think, you know, 10 years ago or whatever that I would be starting a, a nonprofit. So I got interested in education at an early age. You know, I was always interested in tutoring and, and you know, what life in the classroom could look like. Um, but I was also extremely interested in the law as a tool and an equalizer. Um, both my parents were public defenders. And so I sort of had these, these dual not necessarily opposing interests, but just sort of parallel interests in education and in sort of law and public defense. And so in, in college, I spent a lot of time looking at how education, sort of the disparities in education, and also how education could be used um, and improved in, in the country. And so after college, I did Teach for America, where I met you. And, and I absolutely love teaching. I taught at an all-boys charter school in Brooklyn, and it was an incredible experience. Um, I loved my students. I loved my school. But I will say that, you know, it was during the time of um, where zero tolerance policies were at, you know, the, the height. And so students all over the country were getting suspended or expelled for things like, you know, bringing a chain wallet to school and that kind of thing. And, and so as much as I loved teaching and as much of a difference as I felt, you know, the teachers in the, in the classroom were making, I also kept going back to this idea that, you know, maybe the career for me was to, to focus on education, but potentially through sort of a legal services. Then. So I ended up going to law school, really focusing on the intersection between education and the justice system. So, you know, as, as many classes as I could take on things like education and the law, education policy, juvenile justice classes, children and the law. And I, I tried to sort of figure out what a career um, in this space would look like. And 
you know, it, the, it, it wasn't quite clear to me because I, I think there just weren't a lot of options out there. But my second year summer in law school, I had a um, summer internship at the DC Public Defender Service. And there I was able to um, spend the summer working with the public defender service, but inside a juvenile facility in DC. And during that time, I, I was, you know, pretty shocked by what I saw. So many of the young people who were in that facility were actually ages 17, 18, 19, and 20. So these were the oldest students. And I had taught third and fourth grade. So, you know, I had no experience working with with older students, but I also knew that these young people still had, had a right to special education through the age of 21. I mean, in, in DC through the semester in which they turned 22. So here were these young people who still had a right to education, who were in the juvenile system, um, but also could simultaneously be involved in other systems like the criminal system. So there, it was sort of a, there are so many cooks in the kitchen, so many agencies um, that they potentially could be committed to. And, and there were just like absolutely no services specifically dedicated to these older students with disabilities. Um, and when I talk about older students with disabilities, I mean, the inside the juvenile justice facility, over 80 students, 80% of the students had special education needs. I mean, that's compared to like 15 to 20% in the community. So 80% inside facilities and then 15 to 20 in the community. So that, I mean, the, the, that's just uh, an appalling, appalling difference. So, you know, I, I really was struck by just the disproportionality that I was seeing there. And when we talk about disproportionality, there's there's both the element of disability, but also race. 100% of the young people who were incarcerated were students of color, um, basically 97% Black, 3% Latinx. And so, you know, this, this and this wasn't a coincidence, right? We, we know that we have a system that's been built on racism and continues to per- perpetuate it. So I felt like like there was really something there. And, and when I looked for what services were sort of available for older court-involved students with disabilities, there just wasn't much out there. There were not organizations that were specifically dedicated to this oldest population of students. Um, and most special education lawyers actually are either private, you know, they, they are paid like $500 an hour or something to work with families who can afford them. And they also generally work with parents of students because your, your special education rights are to you when you turn 18. So, so anyway, there, this was just sort of a completely unrepresented population um, in the field. And so I did a, an Equal Justice Works Fellowship that with the Public Defender Service where I was able to provide special education legal services to young people who were committed to DC's Juvenile Justice Agency and placed inside that same secure facility. And so from that, during those two years, you know, I learned a whole lot um, and, and saw how many systemic barriers there were. Um, and so I, I met my co-founder, Sarah, who was also doing a postgraduate fellowship. Um, and the two of us applied for an Echo and Green um, Black Male Achievement Fellowship in 2013 to, to get seed funding to start School Justice Project, which, you know, does the, the same thing that that fellowship had done. Um, we provide special education legal services to older court-involved students with disabilities in D.C. So that's, I know that's, <clears throat> that's a lot. But that is sort of the how I ended up at School Justice Project. And, and I can tell you a little bit more about what we do shortly. Yeah. So that is quite the origin story. And Claire, you know, you said it yourself, but when you look back, it is so obvious to you now what your path was and how linear it is. And I think that's what makes some people so successful at being impactful. They feel called to a particular cause and a particular effort, and they really champion that effort in a variety of ways and continue to build upon their knowledge and experiences. So 
I'm, it's really wonderful to hear just what led you to this and also alarming to hear some of the highlights of your experiences and learnings during your time that led up to the founding of School Justice Project. So, Claire, I, I'm wondering, was your co-founder an educator as well or? <laughs> she actually, she was not. Um, she was very much in the sort of public defense and um, actually more interested in the adult population. You know, when I, on my first day when I met her, she's like, and yeah, I know you were a teacher, but I just want, want to let you know, like, I'm not a kid person. I really don't like kids. I know I'm working <laughs> in the juvenile justice setting, but I see myself more in the, in the adult setting. And which is funny because, you know, 10 years later, Sarah and I are still <laughs> working hard at it, doing, you know, the same, the same work we were doing back then. Um, but, it, you know, she she was really passionate about sort of prisoners' rights and reform and being able to make sure that young people or, you know, anyone who's incarcerated, that their rights are able to be enforced and also, you know, working hard to get them out of facilities. So, so our work really, we see it both as increasing educational equity um, on the education side, but also decreasing the use of mass incarceration. Um, so we use our education arguments to try to get young people out of jail and prison. And we, we believe, you know, fundamentally that young people are better educated in the community and that they belong in the community. So anyway, Sarah was coming at it from much more of, of the justice lens and I was coming at it from more of the education lens. And, and so together, um, I think we've been able to, to really sort of blend those together well. Well, and it's right in the name school. Yes, exactly. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. So, so let's, let's start there then. Why, what are the challenges uh, that students with disabilities that are incarcerated or within the system face that are, are some of these barriers that you're naming? What, what makes it so much more difficult and challenging? Yeah, great question. And I could probably like talk about this for at least the next seven hours. So, I mean, there, there's some key barriers that um, we saw, you know, right from the beginning. So first of all, getting education inside secure facilities is just difficult. Often young people are coming to facilities not having had great experiences with education. As I said, the like 80 to 90% of young people who are incarcerated have special education needs. So, so they already, you know, had special education needs while they were in the community schools. And often those, those needs went unmet. And so when students end up in the, in the justice system, they've, you know, already had some experience with educational failure often, whether it's like suspensions, expulsions, or just not having their needs met and feeling frustrated and sort of disenchanted with school. And, and then once inside, it's so rare that you actually are getting a good quality education, like, you know, rights and what you're entitled to aside, just like the actual quality of the education that you're getting is often abysmal. You know, students will get things like work packets. Math is just math. Like there's, whereas, you know, in the community, there's algebra and geometry and different types of math. But often, you know, in secure facilities, you're just like going to math class and whatever that means. And students are getting packets. They're not necessarily getting the, the services that they need. So, and all of this is, is even pre-COVID. So we'll get into sort of what's happened with COVID and how that's just had you know, devastating effects on students. But even pre-COVID, just education inside facilities is often inferior. So, so that's a key thing that we've worked on. And, and sometimes, th this is also related, it's really hard for students' records to transfer back and forth. And so students will get to facilities and they've already taken, you know, this, these classes, um, but they're placed back in them again. And so this can lead to what we always call the credits issue, which is sort of the second primary focus. So education inside facilities is being bad. That's one thing. And then the second primary thing is, is the credits issue. So the credits issue for me, like this was one of the biggest reasons why we had to start School Justice Project. 
And I feel like I've gotten so many gray hairs over the course of the past 10 years trying to deal with the credits issue. And it's still, you know, there it's, it's just, this monster has so many heads. It's like you cut one off and like a thousand more grow or whatever. So one issue is that students in facilities, they're, they're sent all over the country. So DC students are sent all over the country into ju- different juvenile facilities to be, you know, quote, rehabilitated. And, and so they're sent there by the DC government. And yet they'll come home and find out that English one in Iowa, which they took after being placed there by the DC government, isn't going to count for English one in DC. And so, I mean, it's just, it's so totally outrageous that students have to go through this. They'll find that, you know, they've spent years getting A's and B's inside secure facilities all over the country. And then they come home and instead of being a senior in high school, they're still a freshman. They have to start all over again because the credits that they took didn't count. Um, and, and the the school work that's completed. Devastating. I know. It's like, and I, I just it's it's so frustrating and outrageous to me. And it's not even my life that's you know directly affected by this. So you can imagine for young people how just how much of a setup this all feels like. And so so the credits issue. I mean, another sort of key part of it is sometimes students will get moved from placement to placement over and over. And so they're they're sort of at placements for too short of a period of time for their credits to to count and be accumulated. Yeah. yeah. And so being able to like transfer and accumulate credits so that you can work towards a diploma is a really big problem. And luckily, you know, we've been working on both a legislative solution for that. And then, you know, I think over the years, we've sort of developed some tactics to to help our individual clients. But this is really a systemic issue. And so no matter how much we're able to like address this for the individual clients we serve, there will continue to be young people coming after them who will experience the same thing. So we, we need to really fix the system here. So, so yeah, the, the credits issue and then education during incarceration are two of the largest issues facing court-involved students with disabilities. For the educators that are listening, who may be less familiar with what this looks like for an incarcerated student, they're probably picturing, well, when I have a student with disabilities in my school or my classroom, there's someone who's advocating on their behalf, their, you know, their documentation, their IEP, their 504, making sure that goals are set, they're working towards those goals. What does that process look like when a student is not in a school, but is in fact incarcerated? Is there still the documentation kind of process renewal? Does it look the same as it, or is it drastically different as well? Well, it, it really should look exactly the same. And, I, you know, I think the the level, the quality of the school inside the facilities is a, um, you know, an important, obviously a critically important factor. I mean, there's still special education coordinators inside schools. There's still special education, I mean, inside facilities. There's still special education teachers inside facilities. And, and the rights that special education students have in the community are the same inside facilities. And, and that holds true, you know, again, for the 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. So, yeah, so it really should be the same. It's just that that's often not how it plays out. So in theory, this is a continuation of the type of structures and supports that would help implement an IEP or 504. However, due to some of the issues you named earlier, that isn't the reality. Exactly. Which obviously exacerbates, in addition to the curriculum that you're naming as as not being as rich and fruitful and maybe engaging, it is also problematic for a student with disability to not have the uh, interventions and supports. What about uh, related service providers? Are related service providers still present in in these facilities as well? Yep. I mean, students, students should really be getting the exact same thing that they're getting in the community. Related services, specialized instruction, all of it should really just be the same once they're inside a facility. Often, that's, again, just not the case. I think another sort of barrier 
to, even if the school is good inside the facility, it can also be really hard for the school to operate within sort of a Department of Corrections setting. So, you know, in order to teach students, the there need to be like corrections officers or, you know, youth development officers who are moving the students to the classroom from their cells. And so if the students don't get to the classroom because, you know, all movements have been stopped or something like that, it's really hard for the teachers to teach. But again, you know, it, that, that can be frustrating, right? Because you have different agencies that are all sort of tied together trying to, you know, make sure that the students can get what they need or sort of hindering that. Um, but ultimately, like for whatever reason, whether it's the, the um, sort of court agency or, or prison agency, or if it's the school or education system, uh, the bottom line is that the child isn't getting what he needs. Well, and you wouldn't so, exist if, if they were, right? right. Like school justice right. project clearly wouldn't have been built if right. the system was working as it should. So, right. so if things could organically, you know, work themselves out, I would love to be out of a job. But unfortunately, you know, the it's sort of like the more we got in there and and you know, started realizing what the problems were, the the worse, like the more we saw how just like pervasive and systemic everything was, and that it you know there were not things that could be worked out, you know, student by student. That like there needs to be some serious system overhaul. So, the big elephant in the room that you alluded to earlier is COVID. Yes. How has COVID? altered for better or for worse the education of students with disabilities in the system? I mean, COVID has been a total disaster. I mean, obviously for, for so many reasons. I mean, the same things that are, you know, uh, affecting everyone, students who are incarcerated have family members who are dying and family members who are out of work because of COVID, um, instability in housing, food insecurity, those kinds of things are all really having a huge traumatic impact on our clients. But then if you look to the education piece alone, I mean, it's just been a complete disaster. Uh, So for students in the community, you know, obviously in March, 2020, things were bad for everyone. The school sort of didn't know what to do. Everyone's trying to figure that out. But eventually things got figured out, right? Students got laptops and access the internet, you know, obviously there, there are still huge equity issues at play in the community, but the school system started to, to sort of get their bearings and figure out how to handle things. For students who are incarcerated, that just never happened. Like students just did not get education for the entire period of COVID. And unfortunately, like, you know, is so often the case for students who are incarcerated, their voices often get silenced, right? And, And they're very often the last priority. And so everyone was so focused on community schools and what was happening in the community that, you know, the students who were inside facilities, they just effectively got left behind for this entire period of time. So, you know, we've worked, um, we partnered with a law firm and um, the Washington Lawyers Committee. So we partnered with um, them to file a class action lawsuit that basically address this challenge of students who are incarcerated in the DC jail um, not having access to education during COVID. And, and this case is still going on. I will say, and you know, I won't get into all the details of it, but so in June, there was an injunction. Um, Judge Nichols um, recently, uh, I guess uh, two weeks ago, ordered DC in contempt of his June 16th prelim- preliminary injunction, which was basically saying that they needed to provide special education to students at the jail. And so even though he said that, you know, back in June, Students still weren't receiving it, you know, 
it by mid-February. Um, and so the judge said like, okay, DC, you're in contempt. Students are still not receiving their IDA mandated specialized instruction and services. So the district is going to have to basically remedy this. And so to remedy it, there, there are a couple things that the judge said that the district needed to do. And so we're hoping that this will at least like be some, some measure of progress on the case. But I, I will say that it's also, it's difficult that we have to be like this deep in litigation for, for students to be getting something that they've been entitled to this entire time. And as you know, there are time constraints with eligibility and that students you know, they're, they're, they're trying to get their education and they, they just can't. And so all of this time that's going by is really, really wasted time for them. Um, and it's really tragic, frankly. And it, you don't get that time back, right? right. <laughs> so for, right. for the folks that are listening that are non-educators, what happens is, is the, the larger your gaps between instructional time to the sequence of information in your brain, the connections that your brain makes to pre- previously learned content, it weakens and it, it is harder to regain. It's, it's much like I haven't ridden a bicycle in 15 years. And the last time I tried to ride one, I literally couldn't get back on. And so it takes a lot of time. It's going to take intensive support in order to remedy this gap of instruction that the students, your clients are actually seeking. So, so this is an active lawsuit. It sounds like there's updates happening regularly. Yes, it's actually moving quite quickly, which is, you know, for litigation, which is great. Well, and then, like we said, time is of the essence. Time matters, especially time boxed uh, students with IEPs and 504s that you run out of time once you turn, as you said, in D.C., you said the age was 21 in your 20 or your 22nd term when you're turning 22. So for many of them, they're probably aging out after two years of lost instructional time. That's right. Um, and luckily, the one of the things that the judge said recently was that he ordered extended eligibility for the necessary amount of time that the students would need to have received the education. Um, that they oh, so, ex- so that they okay, great. That's so, which is great, which is huge. But, you know, to, to what you were saying about that doesn't sort of change the, the sort of learning process, right? Of that that of everything should be relatively sequential and it would have, you know, but luckily there are, the IGA does provide of a structure to be getting compensatory education. And so it's not necessarily like an hour for hour thing, right? That it, that it might take more education to actually like catch up on what you, where you would, to, to get you to where you would have been had you had the proper education in the first place. So yeah, so that's sort of where we are. And, you know, I have to say it's been great. You know, we're a small organization. School Justice Project has um, well, we just hired our sixth lawyer, which is exciting. But there, so there are six of us. And so it's been amazing to work with Washington Lawyers Committee and Terrace Pravlik and Million, the law firm um, I mentioned, because they have such extensive experience doing this kind of complex litigation. So for us, it, you know, this has been really important for our clients and, and we hope really important for the city and potentially, you know, could also provide precedent for, for other jurisdictions. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine DC is not the only place that has, I would, I would imagine not the only place that has suspended, you know, typical instruction for students that were incarcerated during the pandemic. That's right. And, you know, if we learn anything, if we've learned anything from our work, we see that, you know, throughout the country, students who are incarcerated are not prioritized. And so, you know, I think one of the largest learnings I've had having like been in the classroom and then in the courtroom is just the importance of prioritizing, you know, the students who need things the most, right? And so students who are in foster care, students who are homeless, students who are in the juvenile and criminal legal systems, 
their educations have so often been disrupted that we need to, you know, put so many resources and prioritize their education moving forward. And I think that's especially true after COVID. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of at a loss of words, which is rare for me, Claire, um, but I'm a bit at a loss of words, just, just at the gravity of the situation. And, you know, when you talk to your clients and, and I'm wondering, like in your experience, in your advocacy work and, and just like moving the needle forward, um, what is the hope? Like, what is the hope for these, for your clients long-term? Um, again, you said, if I put myself out of a job, you gave one scenario in which you could put yourself out of a job. What is the goal? Like if at the end, what will you hope have happened, has happened for students everywhere that are incarcerated or in the system? Yeah. I mean, students who are incarcerated should have the same shot, the same chance as students who are in the community. And, and so, you know, I think our goal is to make sure that their educational experience it is high quality and and is you know the same as students who are in the community at excellent high quality schools. You know, ideally they won't need special education lawyers unless they need them the same way that you know rich families from the suburbs need them, right? Like you might want one to come to a IEP meeting with you to help advocate, but you shouldn't need one to basically like undo the past seven years of of educational neglect. Right. And so so the role of an education lawyer for those students should change. And and for us, like we hope that we're able to, you know, until that happens, we hope to be able to grow capacity, not just like at SJP, but sort of citywide capacity and and attention on the issue so that uh, any student who's involved in the court system has access to a free special education lawyer. Seems like a pretty good goal to me. (laughs) Thank you. I'll keep you posted on how it's going. <laughs> One thing I will say on that, um, DC actually had, we, we've been working on some really cool legislation that would make um, available free special education lawyers in criminal court. So like in the same way where you could get a um, defense attorney appointed to you, you could get a special education attorney appointed to you. And DC already has that in the family court, like so for juvenile cases or neglect cases, you already can get free special ed lawyers who are paid by the court. That creates sort of a market. So if you're a private special education lawyer, you could still make money representing people who can't pay you. So it's like a great, obviously a great incentive. But the problem is, even though you still have special education rights after age 18, they don't, for some reason, this has never like translated to the adult criminal court. And so we've tried to close that gap. And so legislation was introduced last February on this. Um, and we believe, I mean, hopefully it will pass. I think it's, everyone seems to be in favor of it, but this would be the first panel of its kind in the country. And so what we're really hoping is that we can get this passed and then, you know, train other jurisdictions on sort of the benefit of this legislation and the benefit of special education lawyers um, in criminal court. And so other jurisdictions could actually um, implement the same thing. So that's, that's one of the sort of current systemic advocacy goals we have going on. Also incredible, and I can I can see the impact it would have to have those types of supports in place automatically, not based on like the the size of your bank account uh, totally. at the time when you engage. So exactly. that's incredible. Thank you, Claire. I'm wondering how your perspective has changed since your early days of being a little uh, being a little being a tutor in schools to being a teacher in an all boys charter school. To where you are now. How is your perspective working across and with all types of students developed? That's a great question. You know, I think I think when I was younger, I had this sense that like if you could if there were, you know, good schools, the world could be fixed. 
<laughs> and, you know, I, I don't think I, I sort of fully grasped the impact of, you know, historical racism, current racism, and, and just sort of the, the, what needs to be changed that's sort of outside, you know, just the specific like world of education, but that obviously has impacted, ha- had an impact on education from the very beginning. And then, you know, our current education systems continue to perpetuate the problem, right? So, so everything is obviously in, intertwined and inextricably linked. Um, but I think I, the way I saw things, it was just like a lot more sort of siloed. Um, then teaching, I, I saw how incredible, you know, good schools and good classrooms could, you know, the incredible difference that they could make. Um, and, and, you know, how, just how important, um, you know, the classroom is. And I think, you know, but I still saw at that time that even no matter like what was happening in schools or in, even like within the education policy world, that there were just still, again, so many other issues at play. And so again, that's sort of what brought me into the legal sector, because, you know, if kids are getting kicked out of school and don't have much recourse, there is not a whole lot that teachers can do. And I think as a teacher, I really felt that like, you know, that there's, there's this element that's outside of your control, right? So now I would say, you know, the probably like the most important sort of learning or, or perspective shift has just been like how important being able to sort of view and attack things, sort of different systems and see the different layers, how important that is. And that it's, it's critical to have, you know, educators and policy people and agencies and lawyers all working to improve educational equity and to, and to make sure that, you know, we can write the system because, you know, lawyers can't do it alone. Teachers can't do it alone. Like there's, there's no sort of one sector that's going to be able to tackle the issues because they're just so deep. And so we need to sort of work together and we sometimes, you know, we have to be working in opposition in order to get to, to the sort of unified goal. Right. And, and so like lawyers can hold school systems accountable and, and, and yet like still have the same goals. So, so I think to me, I've just sort of, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how important it is to have different stakeholders and have everyone sort of at the table. Yeah, that is, that's profound. I mean, at the end of the day, if what we're all working towards is equitable access to high quality education, it takes every angle to achieve that. You're right. It can't happen with just the teacher. I don't know if you're, if you're watching Abbott elementary right now, but it is like this show about a teacher in Philadelphia who, you know, she's young and she's bright eyed and she's like, I can change every, and like through the course of the season, she's realizing like what her locus of control is, but also how much, and I just watched another episode last night, but like how much working within her school as like one example, microcosm of your bigger picture and bigger vision, how working with everybody is so necessary for students to grow holistically, not just one student, but all the students. And so just, I keep drawing parallels to the show because I, I really, it really resonates with me and it's apparently resonating with much of America, but I, I really understand your point quite well, which is it, it it takes so many people's investment and collaboration. It's not one person's job. Totally. And, and I think the other thing, which I don't think I understood at first, but I definitely learned um, while in the classroom and now, you know, working with clients is definitely the case. It just the importance of, of sort of centering the student, right? 
that, you know, as a teacher, you don't know better than the student comes to the classroom with his own set of experiences and, and knowledge and goals and dreams, et cetera. And the teacher can help be sort of a guide and a steward to, to access things, but that the student is really the one who, who needs to be centered. And so being able to make sure that like we're building systems where we're focusing on on what students are saying they need, not like necessarily what we think they need. And same thing with clients, you know, we do express interest representation. There might be, there are times where I might disagree with a client that like the route that they're taking is the one that, you know, is the best, but you know, I can do some counseling, but ultimately a young person knows themselves and, and is able and cap- perfectly capable, better <laughs> able to make decisions for their own lives. Um, and so being able to make sure that you're sort of centering the young person instead of putting your own opinions or biases or perspectives um, in front of theirs. I was going to ask you as a final question, as I often do, <laughs> what advice you would give an educator at the start of the career, their career, but I think you just gave it. Yeah, I would say that's, I mean, that's the advice. <laughs> I mean, I'll give you an opportunity to add to it, but like, that sounds like really the advice that you would give. Yeah, no, I I mean, that, that's, I think my, my clear answer. Um, And that, and I will say that like having, you know, in both the classroom and the courtroom that, that has served um, to be the most important learning and that the relationships that I built with students, the relationships I built with clients, that was everything. Right. And, and so, you know, anyone who's starting out on their, you know, educator journey, just being able to to really form those relationships and really get to know your students, I mean that that can be. I mean that's that's the one. That's the thing that's to the do. Work. That is absolutely that's the work. work. Yeah. <laughs> wow, Claire, it has been an absolute honor to listen to the drive, the passion, and the vision that you and your team are collaborating on to support students throughout. Washington, D.C., and it sounds like the country. Your view is really inspiring, and I feel so grateful you shared what is really important time um, that you could be spending doing other things with us today to talk about School Justice Project and your journey. Well, thank you so much for having me here. It's been really great to talk with you. And also, if anyone listening has any questions on the litigation, my colleague, Teo Bell, um, is is running the litigation for our team, and she's she's incredible, and would be happy to to talk with anyone about that as well. Great. Well, thank you again so much for coming, and thanks to everybody who joined us today and is listening. Thank you so much, and good to see you. Good to see you too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com.